Many young people set out for college right after high school without a real game plan. It's just what you're supposed to do. Many quit, and that'll probably be it for them. It's 9 to 5, 5 days a week. Hell, most people that actually graduate college end up on that day shift and spend the rest of their lives paying off those student loans and eking out the basic blueprint of a normal life. Every once in a while, though, a person will go another route in finding out who they are. They'll pull a Hemingway or a Kerouac, maybe join the service, fight in a war that will leave indelible impressions upon them, eyes widening with a sense and scope of the world, and, if you're from the United States, a realization that maybe not everything your country does is necessarily in the world's best interest. They quit the military and go off on a new adventure as a solitary traveler, exploring foreign locales in ways that ordinary tourists never would, soaking up the various cultures and gaining a new perspective. Maybe they climb mountains, get their hearts broken a few times, and grow anxious about the plight of some of those countries that are ripped asunder in devastating turmoil. Maybe they do something about it and finally find exactly the purpose they were meant for. Today we have such a person, an ex-Air Force mechanic, a mountaineer, a world traveler, a humanitarian. Listen up, because you might just learn something. Today we have Eric Kramack, who is here to tell us his story on this episode of Five Dollar Buzz. Please step inside, lock the door behind you, make sure the towel is properly positioned, and as always, lock the door. You're sitting in again on another $5 buzz. Uh, the crew is a little bit lighter today. Pete is out on assignment, but Roger Mayer, as always, in Los Angeles. How are you, Roger? Doing fantastic today, sir. It's a nice Friday morning here in Los Angeles. Temperature, as David Lynch would say, 82 degrees. It's great. Perfect day for filming, man. But um, I'm here, uh, unseasonably beautiful day in uh, Stamford, Connecticut. I'm at the third place brewery enjoying, enjoying a pumpkin spice beer right here while we do this show. It's going to be a really interesting. So uh, I'm really excited about it. Um, and Roger, real quickly, I just saw a show up at the Capitol Theater with one of your least favorite bands. Uh, well, one of the members of your least favorite bands the grateful dead phil lesh played up there but more importantly in a couple of weeks we got gary clark jr coming through and uh i'm gonna go catch that show i know you've done some work with him so uh i'll be excited more excited to report back on that show yeah Uh, produced a music video for him for his song pearl cadillac yeah and i hopefully if i get a chance to say hello to him i'm gonna pitch him and we talked about maybe uh he may uh be polite enough to uh talk to us someday that would be awesome. Yeah. So uh, hopefully a little teaser. So today is uh, historic on $5 Buzz because this is the first time we're doing a show with a guest who's located overseas. And our guest today is Eric Kramack. Uh, he sits currently in Amman, Jordan, on the other side of the world. And he's been gracious enough to take his time uh, to talk to us. He's got a really interesting um, day job and he's got a very interesting career in life. And uh, we just want to share it with our audience. And funnily enough, Eric and I, Eric was one of the very first people I met in college, a small liberal arts school up in uh, Northern New York on a Canadian border, SUNY Potsdam, Roger. Have you ever heard of it? I might've heard of that. Might've heard of it. You've heard of it. And Eric, I remember grew up in Mexico, not South of the border, Mexico, but Mexico, New York, which uh, for those that don't have an atlas handy is situated up near Syracuse and uh, Oswego, New York, another raging party town. So, Eric, I always remember you would always say I'm from Mexico and just Roger it was like a Fletch movie or you don't look Mexican. Eric, how many times have you heard that? Once or, once or twice, George, that's uh, a pretty, pretty common trope uh, in, in upstate New York. But it, a small town ribbing for sure yeah and i remember i I was gonna say that a lot of mexicans do not you know they do look like you you could pass (laughs) you'd be surprised in southern mexico absolutely yeah so it was it was you always handled it very well and i just remember it was just such a uh a hackneyed comedy routine but uh it was just something i remember and i remember another guy that we hung around with and partied with was a guy named chuck specter who someday oh, yeah. I would love heed. to get heed. 
Yeah, they named Roger was a guy that they called he the, of the uh, I, so I married an axe murderer fame. Yeah, he had a huge afro. But anyway, Eric, uh, what do you remember about the early days of Potsdam? Because I know you came Not in so probably. Much. Yeah, you came in with some very good intentions. I remember you and I played some rugby and uh, it kind of descended out. It, it got away from all of us pretty quickly. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I think it, it spiraled out of control rapidly, you know, coming from like really a small town and very, I would say, very sheltered compared to you, all you boys from, from the big towns. Um, it was a bit of a bit of an eye-opening experience, right? Uh, and really into the, 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 the spoof and the towel and the, yeah. the, the citrus air freshener days quite quickly, which really became not just a, a pastime, but I think most of that only semester I was at, uh, at Potsdam. Yeah. And you know what? It's funny. It was only a semester, but it, it was impactful enough, man, because a lot of the guys that's come on the show, like uh, Brian Clancy, our wine expert, yeah. and uh, Tom Glasgow from the, and Vale, yeah. who coincidentally I went to the Phil Les show with. That's kind of why I brought it up. So just saw yes. those guys and they're super stoked that uh, you're coming on the show. So you came in the pot stand probably with some pretty high ambitions because I remember you being like a like an, a pretty solid academic guy and you seem like you had your head on your shoulders relative to a lot of the other people that were hanging around were, who were seasoned, uh, you know, outcast misfits and the like. So you decide in 1995, you're not going to go back to Potsdam. Like yeah. what, where did life take you at that point? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's right. You guys are just just too much for me, I think. As <laughs> fun, as, as fun as it was, it definitely wasn't uh, the way that I needed to go, or I didn't know if, uh, what was going to come after that. And so I took a, took a bit of time off, sitting around my, my mom's house in Mexico, New York, working in some, some shitty shop in Oswego, swilling beer in the basement, taking dust off whippets as, as per usual, just not even pretending to... Uh, but, but not pretending to go to university anymore even. And after about, about six months of that or so, I think my mom got a little fed up and she told me that I needed to do something with my life, uh, which for my mom is uh, was a very mild, very mild person for her to even make any suggestion like that was, uh, was pretty radical, I think. So uh, as every good patriotic American boy does when they don't know what the fuck to do with their lives, I joined, uh, I joined the Air Force in like, July, I think, uh, June or July of, of 96. Uh, and that was it for, for nine years, you know, I spent some time in, in sunny South Texas in basic training, then in Northern Texas to do some training uh, around being a mechanic. I was working on F-15Es on the, um, the hydraulic systems, the engines, this sort of stuff, um, and then moved to the UK for, for eight years. We have a, a number of Air Force bases in the east of England, not so far from Cambridge, an hour and a half outside of London to the, to the northeast. Spent eight years there playing rugby, working on airplanes, traveling around Europe and the Middle East at the time. Uh, yeah, that was the big, the, the big sort of trip out of, uh, out of Potsdam. Wow, that's pretty interesting, man. And uh, Roger, I know you probably have some thoughts, but that was sort of a relatively stable time as far as military conflicts, wasn't it? Except for like some action in the Baltic region. Was it, was it, is that fair to say? Yeah, the Balkans, right? This is yeah. like, um, I, I mean, Kosovo, uh, Serbia, uh, Croatia, these places for, for a number of years on and off. Uh, in the early 90s, I mean, bits and pieces of, of things around. And of course, there's like ongoing military action at the time, uh, defending the, the northern fly zone, northern no-fly zone and southern no-fly zone in, in Iraq, uh, and with regular sort of uh, engagement with, with the Iraqi military there, but uh, nothing large scale. Were you, yeah. still, uh, were you still in the Air Force uh, at the time of 9-11? Did you overlap with that at all? Yeah, yeah, I sure, I sure did. It was uh, 96 to 2005. Okay. And I was in the UK from uh, to, from 97 to, to 2005 till March or something like this. So I was actually in, uh, I was in Norway in this tiny fishing village where there's a NATO air base uh, halfway, up the, halfway up the west coast of, of Norway called Burland. Uh, when when all this happened, uh, and we were immediately like pulled back to to Lake and Heath, and everybody was locked on base, uh, quite uh, quite dramatic times. And then almost immediately after that, uh, our the squadron that I was working on was on the, the sort of 
involved in the very early days, day one after the sort of naval uh, barrage, uh, but uh, airplanes flying, flying from uh, UK uh, to the Middle East and then on to Afghanistan and eventually spending a lot of time in Turkey engaging in the, the, that initial conflict. Now, were you? Go ahead, Roger. Yeah, did you? Was that? Did you go with them, or did you stay? Were you stay held back? Yeah, I, I mean, I was. Uh, I was in Turkey, uh, in Sirlik Air Base, which is on the right on the Mediterranean. Really, like, pretty okay place to, to spend a few months, despite mm-hmm. the circumstances. Right uh, above the sort of national tragedy, and also the uh, uh, being engaged in the wars, and always that. Um, I don't know. Always had an enjoyable process, but uh, yeah. So I was three months, I, I think, three and a half months in Turkey, and then uh, later spent some time in in Qatar as we were uh, invading Iraq, uh, 2000, late two thousand three, early two thousand four, something like that. Wow. Um, yeah, heavy, heavy things. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I like that you were conflicted because it's such a beautiful place at the same time you're there for such shitty circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, shitty circumstances, any, any way you look at it, I think, no matter what, uh, what your perspective on it is, uh, on military action in general, it's never, uh, never a good time, I don't think. It just reminds me of the, some of the sim- images from the movie The Thin Red Line. Where you know there this man's destruction of the most beautiful places on earth, you know, mm-hmm. happening right all around him, and he captures both of them equally to demonstrate our, you know, whatever. So, but continue on with your adventures. You go from the military, and then uh, once you once your service is up in two thousand and five, you said. Yeah, two thousand five. Then I spent uh, quite a few months uh, on trains, cruising around Europe, uh, sort of. Uh, the, the mainland out to the Balkans, Croatia and Serbia, but mostly, mostly around, uh, mostly around France and Germany with some with some friends uh, and Croatia with some friends. So lived in uh, Ireland for a bit. <laughs> I, uh, I decided that uh, I was going to become a man of the earth, right? After uh, after being in the military so long, so I uh, connected with this small, uh, with a small farm that's in the north. Uh, the northwest part of uh, of um, of Ireland, north of I'm losing names. Anyway, north. No, let's call it Northwest Ireland, right on the right on the coast. Uh, and I arrive and kind of get picked up by this couple. One is like a, a German woman in her fifties. Her husband is this Jamaican dude who is like thirty five or something like that. Uh, it turns out that they were also Jehovah's Witnesses, um, which I didn't know when I uh, when I signed up for this. Um, so I moved into uh, like this shed built on the side of their trailer, which is in actually like the most beautiful place that I've, I've been in Ireland, uh, right right on the coast, off with some islands off offshore, five minutes to, to walk down to the North Sea. Living in this this trailer with them, uh, no running water, and a and a composting uh, a composting toilet, which we were emptying, and it's part of my like work on the farm, putting it into the, the patches, uh, and then like. I remember the last day that I was there, and it was the last day for a specific reason. Um, they decided that we were going to start cultivating potatoes in the plot of land where we've been burying our shit for the last three months, without <laughs> without letting it. I, I mean, right? Yeah, give it a year or something like this, and it was sure there's some nutrients in the soil. But I mean, I literally buried the last bucket a week before, and then they wanted to start burying, uh, planting potatoes in it. Uh, so I, I left that. I returned eventually to the states. Wound up in Colorado for a little while. Uh, went to Colorado, Colorado. Mountain, uh, Leadville, way yeah. up. In, yeah, I know where it's yeah. at. I lived in the Springs for four years. So ah, nice. Yeah, I went to uh, to CMC, uh, Colorado Mountain College, Leadville for a minute. While I was trying to figure out where I was going to actually live, where I was going to go to university for all this stuff. Uh, so spent some time in Colorado um, and then moved on to, to Seattle, to well, North Seattle Community College first and then, uh, and then the University of Washington. Eric, um, can I just ask, um, I just want, after the military, what was going through your head? Were you just, did you not have a plan? Were you kind of just living life as on your own whims? Like, could you just take us a little bit through what your mind, your thought process was? Because it's uh, the yeah. path of that not many people, at least that I know, uh, do traveling through the world and then ending up back in Colorado. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, so my my longer term plan, uh, or actually the plan that I had fixed before I even decided to or thought about going to Colorado, was to go to Cape Town and go to university at, at the University of Cape Town. So I applied, was accepted, has my had my housing sorted out, but I couldn't get my GI Bill to be applied in in, uh, in Cape Town for some reason. Uh, it was. Uh, fairly complicated bureaucratic process and I was right. playing my head against the wall for a while. Uh, so I had kind of, a, I had a plan set up, right, to, to go there. And then this all sort of fell apart at the, like literally at the last minute, two weeks before I was supposed to head to South Africa. Um, so I had a good buddy in, in Colorado that I was actually played rugby with in the UK for, for seven, six or seven years. Uh, and I was living in, in Leadville. So I went to visit him and just ended up staying for a while until I, so we got my shit started out and, and, and came up with a new plan. And then it looks like at some point you decided to move to Seattle. Was that event driven or you kind of just was attracted yeah. to that city? Yeah. So uh, as part of this uh, Colorado Mountain College course, it was like this traveling field course. Uh, of course, at the time, I'm, I forget how old I was. I would have been ten years, uh, you know, eight or ten years older than the, the other only four, five, five people on the course. Uh, but you know, getting getting close to thirty at this point, to 20, 28, I guess, um, with a bunch of kids, right? Uh, right. Yeah. College yeah. college sophomores, twenty yeah. years old or something right. like this, and it was me, three dudes, and and one girl, and I ended up hooking up with the girl, and we spent five months basically traveling the Southwest as part of this course. It's pretty like super strong bonding bonding event, I, I suppose, being in like direct proximity all the time. And, all of these spectacular places, right? Like camping on the beach in, uh, in Baja, in the mountains in, in Arizona, uh, on the Colorado River, and you know, wandering around in Moab and Canyonlands, all this stuff. Yeah. Um, so I went to Seattle because she was from Seattle. And the day I got off the fucking train, that girl dumped me. I couldn't believe it. No kidding, <laughs> man. Wow. Both of those stories sound like a lot of my friends. Yeah. 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 A lot of my friends did that whole traveling around uh, yeah. all around the world and you know uh sort of just going the sort of bohemian you know the, yeah. the, the hemingway bug you know just you yeah know. i mean exactly this like hemingway kerouac this whole lonesome traveler style thing uh yeah yeah i mean this really was this sort of kind of romantic notion uh that, that i built up for years of reading all of this stuff actually was you know while i was in the military of going through be generation and having way and gas all these guys mm-hmm. um, definitely had had this in, in somehow in, ingrained in my mind i think in driving a little bit of the, the still kind of wandering process that's right so what so then you, you you've done your traveling you've gotten out you've seen a bit of the world that is always a helpful thing i think for a lot of people to get out from where they're you know stuck in you know to go out yeah at least provides you with a certain perspective most people don't get a chance to get you know yeah. empathy for others or, or the unusual or the foreign or the exotic which no longer becomes foreign or exotic once you you know sort of assimilate it in some manner but the um you go from there to what you currently do now more or less right so how yeah, does some, where's the inkling, where, what's the inkling or the beginning stages or when does that end yeah. and this begin this new life yeah there are, i mean there are a couple of things right um more in afghanistan the initial days you say say what you want about it right i'm not sure if it was uh the right thing to do or, or not i'm 100 percent confident though that iraq wasn't right, from my my perspective and being involved in this right Okay. And I think that this is something that as, as Americans, right, as the wielder of the, the sword, the global sword, uh, we have a, a, a very unique role to play in engaging in these kind of military events. And I think also a responsibility to deal with the aftermath that, you know, let's call it the other half of our country causes, right? Um, so this is very much the, I think the, the, the mental the mental place I was at or the personal space that I was in is that I, irrespective of the rest of it, right? Certainly what happened in Iraq was, was, was wrong and unconscionable from my, my perspective. And one of the things, you know, like one of my larger term goals is to 
uh, or approaches, I think, is to try to find some balance, right, between the sort of uh, what happened in Iraq and the things that we caused. Clearly, I'm, it's not my fault, right? I, I don't think that, but I think I was somehow involved in, uh, I was involved in this, and I think it, it's incumbent on us, right, to, to take perspective that we're also involved in attempting to find a solution for the issues that we caused, right? Of course, maybe it would have been things that have happened there might have happened anyway. Uh, but, but nonetheless, I, I think somehow it's uh, partially, collectively, right, our, our responsibility to help find a solution to this. And not also, not as, uh, any of it. By extent, or as an extension of that more broadly, globally, right, which is where somehow uh, I, I see myself. Right? Don't get me wrong, I'm not nice. I'm, I'm not a, a crusader in this sense. I don't really have any delusion about or illusion about my role in, in all of this on either side, but I still think that we have some responsibility and do what we can to try to, try to support uh, our, our fellow man somehow. So this is the space, I, I think, the headspace that I was in in, in this time, uh, mid, mid 2000s uh, into uh, you know, late 2000s, I guess. Um, so at that point, then I began to like, go through my, my formal education. I think I already had a pretty broad informal education of being out and, and about and also consuming a lot of, a lot of things myself, right? history and literature. So I started studying uh, geography and, and not necessarily physical geography, like land masses and things like this, but the cultural interactions of people Happy and how space Right and how space is controlled. Modern world history, more or less, right? I mean, yeah, modern modern world history, cultural history. Um, looking at you know, how equity is achieved in societies, how inequity is is perpetuated, all, all of these sort of things. So, very much taking, uh, I, I guess, a much more social perspective to 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 my education. And then from there, uh, when I finished at. Uh, University of Washington in 2010. My girlfriend at the time, who was just finishing, or no, had just come back from the Peace Corps and working in Niger in, uh, in, in West Africa for a couple of years. We moved to Zimbabwe uh, and spent a year there. She was working at a, at a university in Bulawayo, which is like the second, uh, the second largest city in Zimbabwe in the Southwest. Uh, and I was working with, uh, based on my, my like, technical skills in geography, which are like mapping and, and analysis of space and, and things like this. I was working with a, a local NGO that was responding to the cholera epidemic there. And this was really my first sort of engagement with this kind of humanitarian or, or development, uh, development action. Right. Just a side note, when you were in Africa, did you ever try the evil game route? <laughs> no, no, I've never heard of this. Oh, okay, well. I just, every, time I, every time somebody goes there, I always try to ask that. I'm one of the few people who's actually had that. A friend of mine went and visited a woman working in the Peace Corps in the Congo and actually was able to drum up this Ibogaine root and brought it back in a green bottle. And it's a very, very potent hallucinogenic drug. Guys. <laughs> Took nice. it in a brownstone in Brooklyn. So, you know, <laughs> perfect place to do it. Traveled a long way. <laughs> Traveled a long way. So that's fascinating. Um, Eric, George. do you, do you mind uh, expounding a little bit about, uh, it looks like you were there very briefly, but in Lebanon in 2014. Yeah. Lebanon is a, like, a crazy, like, a, a crazy place, right? First of all, there are like, these three uh, basically warring factions divided by, by religions, by Sunni, Shia, and, and Christian slash Druze uh, slash other sort of more localized religions divided to, somehow divided the, the society for, for ages, right? Uh, endemic corruption, and on top of like these two things, constant fighting, uh, war, constant like wars with, with Israel, the influence of Hezbollah, uh, of, of Iran in the, in the southern areas of the country, and the, like the infiltration of uh, sort of the Iranian global perspective and government and all of this stuff. It's also a super small country, right? Uh, Four million people or, or something like that. Uh, probably less now, because a lot of people leaving. But right next door to Syria, and when the Syrian the Arab Spring kicked off in, in 2011, the floodgates opened from Syria into all of the surrounding countries, which has 
like really destabilized uh, destabilized the region. Uh, Jordan is like one sort of pillar of of uh, functionality somehow in the region, but but Lebanon certainly was definitely impacted by this massive influx of, of Syrian refugees, right? And then the conflict that set up between people that are living in poverty already, the Le Lebanese, uh, competition over incredibly scarce resources, no water in the country, no electricity, or limited electricity, all of these things, um, and, and, and also competition over, over just space, right? Like where the fuck are they going to put a million people, like a million Syrians that come into the country, into a place that's pretty incredibly dense, you know, bounded by the sea on one side, really unfriendly neighbors to the south, um, and then a war, a civil war to the north and east. Uh, so an incredibly complex, crazy place. So I was working there for, for just three months, a short period of time. This is when I really like moved full time into uh, to being a humanitarian. There was grad school before that. Uh, in Denver, studying urban planning and working with a, a web development firm on these sort of like data analysis and mapping tools that are focused on development issues. But this is like my first time in the middle of a, like a, a global humanitarian crisis. And I was in the north uh, in this place called Akar, um, in a town called Kobayat, which is like 20 kilometers, 30 kilometers from Homs, right? One of the major cities in, uh, in, in Syria. So quite close, quite close to the front lines of the war, isolated by mountains and things like this. But uh, super, super interesting time, providing all sorts of information support to the broader humanitarian response uh, to the the Syrian crisis in, in Lebanon. Wait, what, um, what is it? I mean, can you speak specifically to what it was you were doing specifically? Yeah, because specifically. that's I mean, being a humanitarian services can be a many, many things. What's yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the organization that I was working for then and still and still do provides information that fuels the planning and coordination of, of the humanitarian response. So we conduct uh, these sort of like broad reaching assessments and surveys really of the, the needs and conditions of affected population, right? Displaced people, refugees, internally displaced populations, the host communities that these people are sort of living next to this kind of thing. So my, my role in this uh, then was basically mapping out where these very small refugee settlements were a few, I mean, there are a few homes, right? A few tents, uh, a couple families, uh, and some instances, sometimes a few hundred people, sometimes a few thousand, but of varying sizes scattered across the north of the country, really scattered across all of, all of Lebanon. Uh, so we were conducting this sort of large scale assessment of needs uh, and, and locations and the intentions of, of the refugees, Syrian refugees that were living in uh, living in northern uh, northern Lebanon at the time, and all that information fed into planning by the humanitarian coordination structure. Right, this is like UNHCR. The That's exactly my next question. Where does that where does that go to? I mean, who and then and then what do they do with that? Who is who's the one who like? Okay, this is what they need. This is, yeah. you know, who's the one that gives it to them what they need then? Yeah, yeah. So there's there's this long chain, right? So uh, information gathering, analysis, planning by the people that are actually delivering, uh, directly delivering the aid, whether it's food or education or, uh, you know, tarps to, to rebuild the shelters after a big storm or a flood or something like that. Uh, uh, basically, we identify the, the needs of the affected population, feed that into the coordination structure of the humanitarian response, and then depending on the needs that are identified, there are different sort of sections of humanitarian response sectors, right? Whether it's water or education, food security, shelter, etc. And depending on the types of needs, those actors take pieces of the information, feed it into their overall analysis, and help to mobilize the resources from donor nations, uh, from the U.S., for for example, from British, from the EU. That was my next question. My next question. Yeah. I could hear it coming back at me. My next question was, who is who? Yeah, I mean, is it an American operation? But you said it's a it's a global operation, but generally an American UK operation kind of combined. Is it the UN? I mean, who is the you know who who is the, the foreign bodies that help? Yeah, so the UN 
plays the sort of the role of coordination in, in all of this. They're the ones that are primarily charged with delivering the aid uh, and plan and planning. The donor nations, so the, the US, the UK, uh, the EU, uh, and its various branches, and then also the member countries of the EU sometimes provide responses. Globally, uh, the US, uh, I, this is quite traditionally the largest humanitarian and, and development donor um, in terms of direct fund, uh, like absolute funding certainly is not, not as part of our GDP or our overall budgeting, but uh, certainly the amount of money going into the humanitarian response is largely American, British, and uh, European, depending on what response it is. Right? Around the Syrian crisis, Turkey is a, is a massive donor, as are some of the, the Gulf states. Um, but again, primarily these sort of, you know, uh, the, uh, NATO, let's, let's call it. Eric, would you be able to expound a little bit about um, the effort uh, amongst those nations as it relates to the work you're trying to do, uh, the spirit of the work you're trying to do? Because it feels like you have, uh, you have a, you're compelled to do something positive, for lack of a better word. And here in the States, at least, all we really hear about is how bad uh, the U.S. is in terms of, you know, going into countries and leveling them and leaving a mess as in, you know, Afghanistan or maybe Iraq or, you know, even what, what can you say? You're, you're kind of seeing the other side of the equation. Um, is it is it uh, is it right for folks like us at home to be cynical and say, you know, the U.S. is just taking a shit and leaving it wherever it wants, like the potato field you're in? Or is there actually some can we feel good about uh, folks like you? Is it how should we? feel because uh, we're not educated and stuff like this doesn't get any airtime over here. Yeah, I mean, this is super, super complicated, right? There are lots, so many things, that, uh, so many factors at play related even to just one country, right? The US, right. Uh, for example, right? We have our own sort of political agenda for stabilizing, stabilizing regions, making them friendly, opening them to trade, ensuring we can extract resources. Um, is it know, fair to say that is the is it fair to say that is the agenda? I mean, from my point of view, that is probably the agenda of uh, sadly what they want to yeah. what corporations and organized governments want to do extract resources and not really yeah. care how they do it. I, I would say uh, taking like a, a really cynical perspective, absolutely. yeah uh, and this is like this is the tension, right? because then there are, absolutely well-intentioned, semi-altruistic people and, and structures, right? Like USAID, uh, the United States Agency for International Development, uh, BHA, the Bureau for Humanitarian Affairs, which is the primary like, deliverer of uh, US humanitarian aid, along with the Bureau for Refugee Population and Migration. migration. So BHA and PRM, these two are where, like, a lot of altruism is, but as you kind of get farther and farther up into the hierarchy of these organizations, they're all led by political appointees who uh, have to respond to political pressures. And I think, I mean, you rightly, you rightly know where the, the political pressure is coming from, right? Uh, not spending money, making sure there aren't angry Muslims around, shit like this, and also making sure that our our corporations have access to the resources in, in some of these places. I would say that the humanitarian, like the, the purely humanitarian side of that, uh, um, the emergency action is very far away from that cynical sort of morass of, of political and financial capital, right? Um, but as you get closer to like, development, so longer term planning and, and programming, uh, the development of systems in, inside of countries. This is much, in my mind, uh, much more closely connected to the political and, and the financial gain that we can get from these places. Yeah, we're great at putting out fires. We're also yeah. great at starting them. So, I mean, it's, yeah. that's a, you know, so one side is starting the fires and the other side is putting them out. What you yeah. don't have is anybody thinking about the long term, right? And that's that's what you're saying. I mean, it's the reason why that we have, you know, 
the 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 largest sea mass of plastic floating off the shore you know in the in, in the pacific you know it's why you have the um uh you know wildfires that ring around the entire country of australia yeah the, these kind of things are the that they occur due to our lack of seeing a future it's about so it's like it's like you guys are tasked with the efforts of of, of just being there you're the best well-intentioned plans for an organization like yours is to fix an immediate problem right you're always a band-aid it's always a band-aid always a band-aid yeah you just yeah. don't have enough uh structure to see what we need to do about the future and and, and you know everybody needs it now so we want to take it now we live in a uh we live in a mentality you know since world war ii of now 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 and you know it's it's that has starting to create something that we could i mean you could physically see the future coming right at us you could yeah. see what we're what what's coming and yet we still despite all of uh, the, the bells and whistles the sirens the alarms we still don't have enough in in trying to put it out you know it's like it, we, we we put biden in office to take over and that's all we thought about to get rid of donald trump but you know there's bigger ramifications than just that you know about the future of this country of the um of the world because I, and I said this country I am guilty of it too of that being you know the United States is the center of the entire fucking world I, I get that but you know we do but we do play God a lot in the rest of the yeah. world so I mean yeah. you, know, it's, it's, you can't deny that um, yeah I, I mean I guess that's just my rant I don't really have a question there. I was just sort of more or less kind of putting into perspective what you were saying yeah. I think that's correct right yeah, absolutely. You know, even within like this sort of the, I would say the bigger perspective of international development, there's some, there are again, well-intentioned, well-meaning people that are trying to plan, right? And the intent of it actually of USAID is not only the humanitarian band-aid, but also this longer term effective. Around all of these structures, I would say there are, you know, individuals that are well-intentioned that are trying to actually do what you're talking about to respond to this longer term intractable, these intractable problems, right? Things that don't seem to have a solution, but we better fucking find one. Mm -hmm. It's gonna be a problem. I mean, because it already is a problem. Um, but the, the the political winds that blow around all of this, uh, I, I think, irrespective of, of party, right? Absolutely right. voted for Biden, for sure. Am I under the illusion that, a Dem <laughs> that, that like, Democrats are gonna fix things? Correct. Probably not. Might Correct. not make things worse, maybe, right? But uh, it, again, I just it, it's. I, I think the structures that we work in and the bigger political game that's there uh, everywhere makes it so that these things are indeed band-aids. That the long-term planning goes to naught because there's a change of uh, plan with a change of administration, etc. Yeah, I, there, I do notice. I do notice baby steps in the world. I mean, McDonald's is going all in on plant-based food. You know, I mean, it's, there, there are baby steps, you know, the auto industry is finally figuring out, you know, uh, taking away fossil fuels to, you know, the unfortunate thing is those batteries are equally as, <laughs> it's as disastrous as the damn uh, gasoline and oil uh, extractions from the earth. But yeah, at least there, there are some thought going into some of the future. So, I mean, I, I can't say that it's not, you know, some of this has become mainstream to, a, to yeah. a degree. So, I mean, that's, and that's just people just banging us over the head for so long. But I, I still think, you know, as far as trash goes, the use of plastic and how much plastic we use, you know, little things like that, you know, it's just, it's, uh, You've seen it. You've been you've been to Asia. Have you been to you know parts of the world where you just see mounds and mounds and mounds and rivers filled yeah. with uh, with and that's mostly comes from us. <laughs> a lot of yeah. that just comes and gets dumped over there because we certainly manufacture the shit out of it. <laughs> so um, Eric, you you've been all over the world. You've interacted with all different types of cultures. You've come back to the U.S. and uh, 
you know, uh, are you hopeful for the future? And uh, I guess, what would you try to impose on us as just a very small signal, hopefully a bigger signal at some point, you know, what, what yeah. message would you like for us to put forth uh, sitting here in the developed world where people are only worried about, am I going to be able to buy some more widgets for my kid for Christmas or, yeah. you know, am I going to be able to have brunch? You know, what, you know, these, pro you know, we say first world problems, you know, today I'm driving yeah. through Greenwich, Connecticut and Rye, New York, like in terms of on the globe, some of the wealthiest places. And there's really not a lot yeah. of worry, but they'll, have you believe that um, they're worried and trying to uh, solve the world's problems. But I find that hard to believe, uh, you know, based on your travels and your experiences, uh, what's your uh, sentiment for the future? I know it's an abstract question, but what yeah. can you, what yeah. can you leave us with, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. I would, I'd like to think that I, I have kind of uh, peaks and valleys of, of optimism and extreme, extreme cynicism. I think like everybody, right. Uh, at the net, I'd like to think that there is a continuation of a, of a decent life for most people, right? Or, or access, actually, actually, let's call it access to decent life, decent standard of living for most people. Um, but that only happens when we actually think about what we do and we think about the echoes, not, yeah, I guess the echoes or the ripples that our actions have across the across the globe. Uh, I mean, Roger mentioned it, right, like dumping electronic or something along this line, right, the dumping of electronic waste in the Ghana, I believe, right, massive sort of electronic waste recycling, recycling, but mostly just <laughs> dumping, um, you know, the, the pushing of, of plastic and, and consumer goods in, in many places that don't have the capacity to deal with these right? The recycling is, reusing is, is quite common, right? And repurposing things is quite common everywhere. You know, I, I, I think uh, people have a good sense of the value of something, but ultimately we send, uh, based on people's demand, honestly, so much trash around the world. Uh, so, many, so many things that will become trash uh, around the world that we, that we also really need to think about what impact this, this is having. And I think we need to think, and also I'm guilty, right? Absolutely guilty of, of consumption of Me too many things, I, I, I think. But, but this is really one thing that, that we need to think about. We need to think of in a less linear, more circular fashion, right? I guess you guys are on, uh, on, on board with the whole idea of the, the circular economy. But this is, it's useful in the United States, right? It's, it's great that IKEA is starting to take things back. Um, but this needs to, needs to happen everywhere, and it needs to happen at all levels for us, us to have any semblance of, of a future that we can live in, right, that's not absolutely ravaged by, by wildfires, by rising tides, right, by, honestly, plagues of locusts. I don't think they have so much to do with global warming, but uh, I've seen those, and they're crazy. Um, all, all of these things. So and maybe to, to sum it up and make it a little, a little more concise, I think I am hopeful that we actually are, are beginning to move in the right direction, but we have to be able to see these things, right? We, we can see fires burning in, in California and Colorado, uh, but until your fucking house burns down, you're not really going to be so worried about, uh, you know, about climate change or about, about wildfires. Uh, what I would encourage people to do is now that most of us are vaccinated, right? Most uh, most places uh, are, except Americans for travel, maybe got some money saved up because we haven't done anything for the last few years. Go, go somewhere that isn't the beach, right? That isn't a resort destination. Also, I do this, right? I go to these places. Uh, but I mean, go somewhere, right? Go to Nairobi, go to South Africa, go somewhere in, in Southeast Asia, come to Amman, see what things are like here, see how people are living and, and like reflect on that. Think about how this could potentially be your life, whether you wanted to, and, and how we can kind of collectively try to make these things that we're experiencing together better. I call that being a traveler, not a tourist. Yeah. Yeah. And that's absolutely, a, absolutely. favorite way to go about the world. I hate being a tourist. 
I don't want to go see the fucking Eiffel Tower. I want to go see, you know, what, you know what I'm saying? I, I just want to yeah. Yeah, go someplace and see how people live. You know, it's much more interesting. It's why you're there. Not just there just to see the eight wonders of the world. I mean, see that, yeah. too, I guess. But, you know, try to try to incom- incorporate both into your travels. Yeah. Right? I, I, I agree with that 100%. Eric, have you ever thought, uh, I'm, I'm sure it must have dawned on you a couple of times, you know, at the top of the show, we're talking about uh, some kind of foolish young adult stuff like uh, $5 Buzz, the namesake of the show, sure, yeah. and yeah, you know, wh- sure. whatever it might have been. And now you encounter a young 18-year-old person in Amman, Jordan. You ever have the thought that, you know, why did you end up in, you know, Potsdam at age 18? This person is on the streets of uh, Amman. Maybe you can even tell us what you're doing there, but you have you ever thought, you know, what, what are the circumstances and the mysteries of, you know, circumstance, you know, yeah. that you've must have thought that, right? Yeah, the, the sort of insane trajectory, insane trajectory uh, of bouncing, uh, bouncing around so many different experiences, right? Uh, I, first of all, I think I'd like to thank Dustoff for, for yeah. making me the thing that I am today. <laughs> so um, great. And you know what? In a strange way, it may have been responsible for yeah. all of this, right? If you if you <laughs> didn't if you have. didn't if you stayed away from the dust off, maybe you, you figured out a way to stay in uh, the SUNY system yeah. and go yeah. make widgets uh, down in yeah, uh, exactly Rochester or something. You know? Yeah. Who knows? yeah. I mean, this is this is exactly this is exactly it. Um, and and I haven't been able to. I, I, of course, these are sort of things that I reflect on and. I'm grateful every day that I don't, no offense to Rochester, right, or, right. or to Carlin or something like this, but I'm grateful every day that I am not working in a factory commuting back in these places. Would love to see my mom, would love to see my family, love upstate New York in the fall, yeah. uh, but uh, there's a, I, I'm incredibly grateful that uh, I've been able to like have these experiences, and I think learn from them and try to reflect on and, and try to improve myself right uh, and do something positive out of however negative uh, the experiences of some of some of the experiences that i've had, had were i mean potsdam net positive i mean i met a lot of uh, you i i really got to know chuck and, and a couple of other people there uh really learned about the grateful dead from right from tom and, uh, and phil yes uh, and, <laughs> Uh, and, and things like a lot of things that are still with me today, right? Uh, yeah. My, my love for rugby, which I played for uh, seven years, I guess, in the. In the That's UK. great. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm really, I, I'm really happy that all of these things actually have happened. That I've had all of these experiences, because I, I think without the military, I would not be here. There's no doubt, uh, absolutely no doubt, no doubt about this. Without the, this sort of my reflection on like my role specifically, but broadly, more broadly, our role, and more philosophically, I suppose, the human condition uh, and the brotherhood of man and all of these things that uh, I I absolutely would not be here. And I never would have been in that position, I don't think, if I wasn't somehow on the the tip of the spear for a little while. Right. Um, One other thing I wanted to bring up, because I know we don't have too much time left, but I know that you are an accomplished mountaineer if that is the correct term for uh someone that doesn't really have that much of a extended background in that but i've seen a lot of cool pictures of you climbing in the u.s and abroad can you tell us you know uh us novices at home some of the is there a trip that stands out and is there another trip somewhere that you're planning on going because i think base you know i think your normal home is switzerland so there's a lot of opportunity to be up in the mountains in that part of the world right Yes, there is. Yeah, I would, I would not call it accomplished. I, I, would, I would say I'm a, uh, a, a strong amateur, Okay. <laughs> I think, uh, in, the, in the broader doing things that people have been doing, or the same thing people have been doing. But uh, none, nonetheless, I've been lucky enough, right, to when I landed in Seattle, uh, actually as part of this thing with Colorado Mountain College, I started rock climbing there and like, living in the mountains of Colorado is something that Somehow in my late 20s, right, I really, really grew to love working at a climbing gym in Seattle, doing a ton of rock climbing around the Cascades, which is 
an absolutely beautiful part of the country. Never been the North Cascades National Park um, and the areas sort of uh, along the, along the Cascade Range in, in the Northwest are spectacular. Um, and got to live in, in LA for a long, for Vine uh, for a minute and, and climb in the Sierra Nevadas above Bishop, right? So I can not with me in all of these beautiful places. And then of course, uh, Mont Blanc and in uh, a lot of the a lot of the peaks uh, in, in in Switzerland and France and in southern Italy. I think something that that really stands out to me is that uh, I can I stare at Mont Blanc from my office, right? See it. From Geneva, so it's in France, but Geneva is basically in France anyway. Um, but you can see Mont Blanc from my office. I've been staring at it for the last seven years when I've been coming through, uh, coming through Switzerland, uh, in and out of our, our headquarters between all of the various countries uh, that I've been living in, South Sudan, Nigeria, and all these places, uh, and just kind of like drooling over it. It's quite, if you're uh, comfortable in the mountains, which I, which I am, and you're relatively fit, it's easy, right? Mm -hmm. It's big, you know, it's over, well over 15,000 feet, it's much taller than anything in the continental United States. Um, it's, it's big, but not techni technically challenging. Uh, so I've been, I've had this plan for a few years to be able to climb it in one, in a single push overnight, car to summits and back, and that's it. So I tried this last year and it was just way too cold. I was wearing like basically running clothes with then some warm, a couple of warm things on top. And then sort of licked my wounds for a while and went back this summer after actually beginning to train to run like uh, mountain races and, and ultra marathons. Uh, so at really probably the almost the peak of my fitness somehow at like almost 45 or however old I am, almost am. Um, and was able to climb it from, from the car, uh, hiking up over 3,000 meters and, and back in, in like nine hours. So this is like something that's technically not challenging, but I'm quite happy about my, uh, the, my sort of comfort to do this overnight on a huge mountain in a fucking absolutely spectacular place. So I think this is something that, that really stands out, uh, stands out for me. In terms of my uh, next next climbing trips, uh, it's it's hard to say. My buddy actually, who's a who's a Googler from from San Francisco, living in Zurich, uh, oh. now working at YouTube there. Uh, he was my sort of like my sole climbing partner in, in Switzerland, and this, uh, they just had a baby, so now he's kind of out of the game for, for a yeah. little while. And so right now, like the big thing is just is running. Uh, this is what I've been I've been focused on uh, of running longer races, 15, 16, 100k. Uh, this kind of thing that I'm hoping uh, to to be kind of get to the level of comfort that I have with climbing uh, climbing mountains, I guess, and mountaineering uh, in the next year or two, so that I can kind of continue to combine the two. That's great, um, Roger. I know we're coming up on the hour. Uh, any more? Any anything else you think uh, the the listeners might want to get uh, gain from Eric's uh, generous time? Yeah, you ever, uh, what, what do you, uh, so you're out there in Amman, Jordan right now. Why don't you give us yeah. a taste of what it's like out there right now? What's, what's, cool. uh, I know you can't smoke marijuana like we can here in Los Angeles. That's it, not so much now. But so you much? Can, no. I know it's you can drink beer, but you, you can't. Can oh, oh, it's, it's not so. Ah, I don't, it's, it's blurring the beer. That's weird. That's anyway, weird. <laughs> they have some pretty decent beer here. Um, Excellent food. I, I guess it's like Lebanese or any sort or similar to Lebanese or any Middle Eastern food. Falafel, falafel for miles and all sorts of hummus and really spectacular lamb dishes, this, this kind of thing. But right now it's like, I think it's about 85 during the day. It's dry heat, so not so bad. Uh, and beautiful, starting to get incredibly beautifully cool at night. And, and here in Amman, which is a city built on like all of these hills, uh, so, hills all over the place and these deep ravines between them that are that are all built up um it everywhere in the uh in the residential areas like in the neighborhoods they, they grow jasmine um which is incredibly which is blooming right now in the entire night smells like smells it's like jasmine. really fragrant yes it, it, yeah it, it's yeah. super nice heavy so fragrant. it's yeah it's like a, a combination of of jasmine of car horns 
everywhere. I don't know. I heard it in the beginning of our episode. Yeah. Yep. There was yeah. somebody laying on a horn. Yeah, car horns everywhere. A bunch of people chain smoking or in cafes, smoking nargila and drinking coffee at two in the morning. Uh, it's a pretty, a pretty cool vibe for a while. But say Amon is, it's also like a hot as hell and dry and it's outside of the residential neighborhoods. It's not so green except for like when it rains once and you know, when it rains in April, it gets green for a little while, then it's just brown, brown desert. Um, but Amman itself is, is quite vibrant and, and super interesting and really easy to deal with. Uh, it's a great, I, I would say it's like a great introduction to the Middle East for people. If they haven't been, I would absolutely recommend it. And then of course, in the South, you have uh, Petra, right? Which is like, uh, mm -hmm. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right? So right. This is Petra. Uh, and Wadi Rum, this really beautiful, like Martian landscape, I think it's actually where they filmed the Martian, uh, of red sand and these huge, uh, uh, these huge uh, stone domes, huge sandstone domes, kind of like Moab or something like this, but on a different, a different scale. Super cool. And how much longer are you there for? Um, I'm just here until Friday, so another week. I'm on, a, I, right now I'm in work permit exile from Switzerland. Uh, my work permit was denied because my organization didn't repost my, uh, my job position when they went to renew my, my work permit. And I'm going through the whole really fun process of applying for my own job and hoping that a Swiss person doesn't want it because then I might not have it anymore. Uh, so I'm waiting for this whole bureaucratic process to go through, but then heading back to, uh, to Switzerland with my dog and my nephew. Great. Oh, finally, one, wait, finally, one of those relationships worked out for you. Yeah, yeah. This one, <laughs> inshallah, you know, let's, let's, let's hope so. And what is she, what is, what type of work is she in? Is it similar uh, to what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. So Elisabetta works for the International Committee of the Red Cross, uh, which is this massive, uh, the old, really the oldest uh, operating humanitarian organization. All the way from uh, one. Uh, and yeah, World War One, and maybe even yeah, yeah. I think that this is it. Right? It's been around for a long time, uh, and she's uh, and she's an architect by by training and a construction project manager. His father's a developer, like a real estate developer in, in Italy, and she manages construction projects. Uh, the last, uh, I guess, her last gig was uh, working on Rafiq Hariri University Hospital, the largest hospital in uh, in Beirut in in Lebanon. Uh, and worked in North Korea and Myanmar and Somalia. Uh, and we met in we met in South Sudan six years ago now. Um, yeah, right, right on six six years ago or so. Sounds like an interesting guest, Roger. Do you think she'd be up for it, Eric? <laughs> I think she I think she would. <laughs> That'd be awesome, man. Well, yeah. hey man, I just want to say it's really great connecting with you, man. And uh I think about that time of our life very fondly, and it's great to, uh, you know, share that. And I know that uh, the people I know are going to be super excited about it. And uh, it's, uh, I really appreciate what you're doing, man. And um, hopefully we can talk again. And if you ever find yourself back on the East Coast or the West Coast with Roger and Pete, we'd love to uh, catch up and have a beer and a couple of laughs and, uh, you know, continue the conversation. Yeah, thanks, George. It's been yeah, it's been great, and thanks for thanks for reaching out. I was following some of the episodes of, of the podcast. Uh, never expected to to be on it, but but here we yeah. are. I'm, I'm excited actually, and, and grateful to get the chance to, to reflect a bit because it's not something that I'm always I'm always so good at. Uh, yeah. I don't always get the chance to like really really vocalize it or articulate it. Uh, and I'm home Christmas, so awesome. maybe uh, we'll fly into New York City. So let's see if we can. Uh, yeah, man, I'm I'm in the I'm in the Adirondacks uh, a fair amount, so there should be nice. a middle ground, man, that we could connect. Yeah. So looking Sweet. forward to that. Roger, you want to take us out here, sir? Well, I want to thank uh, Eric for being on our show. Thank you very much, sir. And I want to thank all of our listeners for listening to another episode of $5 Buzz. Please remember to hit like or subscribe on our YouTube channel or on iTunes and Spotify. If you have any comments or questions or any ideas for future episodes or guests, please email us at 
$5 buzz. That's F-I-V-E-D-O-L-L-A-R-B-U-Z-Z at gmail.com. And we will get back to you as soon as we can as we continue to roll that rock up and down the hill, just like Sisyphus as we try to save the world. Thank you. And don't forget the citrus. Thank you. <laughs>